Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This book by Dr. Damien Dauphiné discusses specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic patients. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, and my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein, fellowship-trained podiatric surgeon, and we are The Pod Doctors. Each week, The Pod Doctors will be discussing aspects of podiatric medicine and surgery to educate our audience on common foot and ankle problems and the latest treatment options available. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows each week discussing all the crazy ways that our wonderful foot can malfunction and cause us problems. So please find us on all the platforms where you find your typical podcasts, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube where you can view our videos. So please like and subscribe, and we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, and I'm here with my partner, Dr. Rafi Hussein. And today we're going to talk about one of your recent cases, uh, fixing some bunion and metatarsalgia. So this yeah. this would be uh, someone with uh, Alex valgus deformity who's also having pain sub-second metatarsal head? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So patient presents, right, with foot pain, a little bit of a bunion, um, but his biggest pain spot was under the second MPJ. So he was walking, had a little bit of a light callus there, and he would just say whenever he was walking, it felt like he was just, you know, rolling off of it. It felt like he was walking on bones. And, um, you know, we try to do everything conservative, adjusting shoes, insoles, arches, pads, etc. And uh, we weren't able to, you know, alleviate his symptoms. So people don't realize that, yeah, when, when you've got a bunion that's significant, that first metatarsal head's no longer bearing the weight that it needs to. Yeah. And it's overloading the next one over. Yeah, depending on who you read, they estimate that the first MPJ should take about 40 to 60% of the forefoot pressure, right? And then the lesser metatarsals should start taking up, you know, 10%, give or take, across Each. the board. Yeah. And when you have a bunion, you know, one, your your toe has been deviated out and over. And two, sometimes it's hypermobile. And right. that's sometimes why we correct it, you know, further back if it was hypermobile. But in this case, it, it was something we could take care of, you know, distally. Uh, the other thing to pay attention to was um, the parabola. So when you have a long second metatarsal, like they show here, the parabola where it should be nice and, you know. Even arc. Even arc, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's a good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. When you have that long second metatarsal, you're literally, you're vaulting off of that tip right there rather than being nice and aligned with the second and third you know they estimate if you do a line i do the line trick i don't do the curve where if you take the line from the on your x-ray from the first to the third there should be no more than two millimeters of length past uh that where that second metatarsal joint is anything more than that you kind of expect they're going to have a little aches and pains there and then the uh the last thing is tightness in the calf muscle so that will put a lot of forefoot pressure on the patient. So whenever they have that tight 
our short Achilles, that equinus deformity. We'll talk about, you know, stretching, and that's what he was doing. He was really, really good, and he's a very compliant patient. But it just, you know, sometimes uh, stretching just doesn't get you far enough. Yeah, I mean, I, we, we joke that equinus is the root of all evil. Honestly, yeah. I mean, it, it destroys the biomechanics of the foot yeah. like nothing else. And if you have neuropathy, that's that's driving Charcot. But in patients who have normal sensation, yeah, they get the forefoot metatarsalgia or capsulitis uh, if it's one particular joint capsule, but classic. So, yeah, I, I agree. Lengthening that tissue is, uh, I think, a tremendous benefit to those folks. So we got x-rays, right? So this is kind of what it looks like, x-ray. Nothing too crazy. Yeah, not a horrible bunion, yeah. but Mild know, bunion, still significant. Yeah, slightly longer second metatarsal, nothing too severe. Um, sometimes with a long second metatarsal, you'll get hammering of the digit also. So when we talked to him, I was like, look, we'll do the shortening procedure. And if it looks like you need a hammer toe procedure, we'll go ahead and do that also. But there's no way for, of me determining that if you will need it or not up until I shorten that and take some of the slack off of those tendons causing that hammering deformity. And sometimes you'll see patients with a pain in their toe and stuff also. And, and you can see he's got that posterior heel spur. So that Achilles yeah. is really yanking on the back of that heel. So yeah, classic classic description there. So incision, we're doing our bunion incision, but we'll kind of talk about everything. When we do our bunion incision, there's multiple options. If you watch some of our previous episodes, we kind of did a deep dive on this, but most people will do a dorsal medial incision, which kind of, pushes the tendon and the neurovascular structures aside from one another. Um, when you do a medial incision, you're at risk of catching that medial dorsal cutaneous nerve as it curves around that first metatarsal. And when you do a dorsal incision, you're going to uh, catch that tendon. So that, that dorsal medial incision tends to be that sweet spot. Also, same thing with the second toe. What you want to do is come in that sweet spot where we push the tendon slightly over so we're not at risk of causing any contractors on the tendon side also. All right, so let's dive into it. So this is my case, uh, double speed. I think we zoom in sometime. All right, so I typically will draw my incision first, right? Just not wasting any tourniquet time. And then I'll do my incision and I'll use an S mark. An S mark is a giant rubber band, honestly. And what we do is we're squeezing the blood out of the foot and we're turning a tourniquet up to just above the um, uh, um, high, uh, <laughs> the systolic blood pressure level where there's gonna be no perfusion down to the foot so my surgical field is nice and clear. So kind of see my my foot here. I'm just going to jump ahead because uh, it'll be a long video if we uh, watch every single second. So I do my incision. I get my one-two pickups. One-two pickups, we call them one-two because one side has one tooth, the other side has two teeth. Sometimes people will call them um, uh, rat teeth pickups or whatever. I think they're called Addison, Addison's, right? Something like that. I don't know. Some doctor names them after himself. Yeah, somebody went down in history with that. So we got a little vessel forming there. So what we do is we decide which way we want to pull it. I'm pulling the vessel over laterally. I'm just kind of boving the branches coming off of it. I don't like to bovie the entire vessel. I know some people like to take it all the way back, but I like to preserve the blood flow as much as possible and just do no harm type of logic. And then I got a new fresh blade, and you see I'm bringing the toe up as I'm bringing the incision down to the level of capsule and peritinon excuse me, periosteum. So the periosteum is the thin layer of um, tissue that hugs the bone, that brings the blood flow to the bone. And the capsule, obviously, is the capsule that forms around the joint. I bring the toe up for the reason that we want to protect the articular surface. So I'm doing my cut and I'm not catching any cartilage in doing, you know, any harm. 
I'm going to jump ahead because now we're just kind of dissecting that periosteum off of there. Did I miss anything, Dr. D? Nope. Yeah. You're just you're releasing the medial aspect of the joint capsule there, freeing up the sesamoids. And their ligaments. Yeah. So all we're doing is just kind of cranking away, making you, sure that I'm freeing that up. Do you use a McGlamory elevator? I do uh, yeah. quite often. I don't know if I did in this one. Mm -hmm. um, I don't recall. But I'd say maybe 70, 80% of the time, I'll use a McGlamory mm -hmm. and get a nice release going. So I'm just getting the last bits of that. The um, If you're a, you know, a foot and ankle surgeon, pre-med, whatever, or pre-podiatry, whatever, you'll see that we try to preserve the apex of the, uh, the blood flow where it comes at the neck on the dorsal and plantar side. So on the dorsal and plantar side, you have a typically a perforator that's coming through. So we're making sure not to peel that aspect off as, you know, as much as we can sometimes. Trying to keep blood flow to the capital fragment. Yeah, the last yeah. thing you want to do is get avascular necrosis of the capital fragment caused by something silly as uh, dissecting too much tissue away. So the capital fragment would be what we call the, the actual piece of bone that we're moving over that's yeah. no longer connected to the main shaft of the metatarsal. So uh, now I'm in the inner space between the first and second metatarsal. I use a typical um, uh, hemostat and I'll dissect it down or I'll use METS and I'll dissect it down, but then I'll clamp it with a hemostat. I'd say, I don't know, 80, 90% of the time, I'll do a lateral release and I'll do a tendon transfer. I'll do my little adductor tendon transfer. But if it's wispy or weak and it doesn't look like I'm actually gripping too much of anything, I'll just do my straight lateral release. The lateral release is the adductor tendon as it comes and inserts on the base of the proximal phalanx and the sesamoids. And uh, it's one of the deforming forces causing a bunion, uh, pulling that hallux laterally towards the second metatarsal, second toe. So I'm just freeing up that ligament, plus I'm doing the capsular part of it also. So I'm doing a little bit of capsular release and I'm doing that ligament release. So I don't think I end up doing an adductor tendon on this one. So now we're jumping into the osteotomy part of it. So I'm doing what's called an Austin bunionectomy on this guy. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to figure out where the WWE came in. Ah, oh, Steve Austin. Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> yeah. Who, who did not name this particular osteotomy? <laughs> Maybe his great, great, great yeah. grandfather. Who knows, right? But uh, um, That's awesome. The, uh, the osteotomy is like a chevron type of osteotomy. If you do any woodworking, it's pretty much we're scarfing that uh, joint there, that bone, excuse me, and we're shifting it over. So if you can imagine, so if this is the, the metatarsal, this is the distal aspect, and this is the metatarsal, we're doing that cut and we're going to shift it over about, you know, a third to a half to even two thirds, depending on how hard we want to push it. And then we'll fixate through that, uh, that little shelf that we leave, and then we'll knock off any remaining bump that might be there. So I always think of it as in terms of if you look at your radiographs up top where you got the coloration, I want to cut that distance between the first and second metatarsal heads in half. Yeah. So if I can cut that distance in half, then I'm I'm typically going to correct a, a four foot bunion without hypermobility. Uh, Ninety percent of the time, I'm going to be able to accomplish it with that. And then again, you know, I really like to use Aikens. Oh, it yeah, doesn't I'll, look like this. I'm that gonna particular do it on this one. one did didn't need it on that the, that radiograph, but yeah. So I've I've slowly become more aggressive with my Aikens, but we'll dive into yeah. that. You'll, we'll, we're going to do that next. So let's uh, jump you, to the You're end. about the right time in practice <laughs> to realize how good the Aiken osteotomy is. Because I think when I first got out of residency, I didn't use it that much either. Because right. you don't get paid any better to do it. But 
but it's such it's an a, extra 20, 30 minutes. Uh, but not if that, even, not even. Yeah. Fif- 10, 15. So I'm getting x-rays. I'm, I'm not going to show those. It's just too much time in between. But I'm getting x-rays periodically. And that's the C-arm, uh, mini C-arm. And we can adjust the foot, you know, and, and see exactly what we're doing. All right. So incision, down to tissue. This is a malleable or ribbon retractor. You can bend it. It's a little bit softer than your normal metals. And what we'll do is I'll knock off that medial prominence off that first metatarsal head, pretty much giving me a flat surface that I can, I can one, you know, shrink that head a little bit, take that prominence down, and two, um, give me a view of how big or aggressive I need to do my chevron osteotomy, my Austin bunionectomy. Yes, you really didn't remove much bone there, and people no. think that that's the main purpose of the surgery is just to lop that thing off. So but back no. in the day... Uh, that silver bunionectomy. Yeah, that, that was what they did. Hundred yeah. plus years ago, when yeah. people started doing bunions, that's what they used to do. I don't think anyone's doing silvers anymore. I don't well, think I've ever even heard of anyone doing silver anymore. If they are, they're they're doing it on you know ninety five year old people who just need the bump off because they yeah. keep ulcerating over the bump or something. That would be like literally the only reason. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the only indication. So. I use a K-wire. I know some people like to do it freehand. I like to do the K-wire. There's even guides and stuff that you can use. Um, honestly, you can use like a coker and clamp the wire. And what the wire does, it makes sure that when I'm doing my two cuts, that the flat 3D surface that where they're meeting, they're aligning well. You don't want them to align, you know, uh, offshoot one way or offshoot another or, or too far distally on one or too dorsally on another. So I'm doing my dorsal cut nice and long and pretty much just touching the bone. You see my uh, scrub tech with me. She's uh, pulling the, uh, the tissue away, giving me a window. I don't like to do a uh, aggressively long incision, so I kind of I, I cheat under the skin, and you can kind of see she's kind of put a little tension on the skin, so I can look underneath there and, and you know get my healthy osteotomy going. So try to do that finger strength, pull that wire out. Sometimes it'll come out, sometimes it won't. But now that I've got everything mobilized, I'll probably use like a spatula or a freer. Uh, freer is like a little tiny... Um, oh, soft tissue elevator. Yeah, soft mm-hmm. tissue elevator. And I'll just kind of wiggle it, making sure that I release the tissue on, on the lateral side of it. And I'll just push it over, making sure i got enough um, uh, shift. And then I'll impact it, right? And then we'll get some pictures probably. So next, I'm going to use a wire driver. The screws we use are cannulated, meaning that the screw length has a hole through it that I can put the wire in first and then I can put my screw in so uh, I know exactly where I'm going exactly how long it needs to be rather than just blindly guessing um, and then you know uh, pull that wire out and press a change you got two screws in your foot do you do two screws one screw yeah typically just one screw um, have you ever used any of those absorbable pins Oh man, they were they were becoming very popular uh, when I was in residency in 96, 97, 98, 99, but no, I wasn't a big fan. I think I think eventually we realized that those orthosorb uh, pins caused a little bit of erosive changes in the bone as they yeah. broke down and some people felt that maybe not not be such a great idea. So, I've always just used titanium screws. So you saw, I just put a measuring device on there. I slide that measuring device on there. I got my x-rays. I see if there's much of a poke out. I typically like to leave maybe two millimeters on either side, just enough for a thread or two on either side. And I'll measure it. And typically, on a, 
I don't know, like nine out of ten times, it'll be a sixteen or something close to it. Yeah, that's a that's a common common sized screw for that. These screws are partially threaded, meaning the distal end of that screw is threaded and the other proximal end has no threads, so it can compress down. You can kind of see when I'm doing my little screw, if I'm compressing it, you can kind of see that juice kind of poking out, pushing out through that osteotomy site. My screwdriver stuck. And then I'll put my other screw on there. Yeah, those screwdrivers are so tightly milled to yeah. the size of those screws. I have them dip it in saline before yep. they dip the screw and the, the driver in saline just to try to prevent that from sticking because yeah. they're just really, really tightly milled. Which is a good thing, but sometimes... Yeah. Because you don't want that screw falling off your driver <laughs> onto the floor. No, well, and you don't want to be ripping it out of the bone by accident. <laughs> Some of these osteoporotic patients. So I'm getting more x-rays, pretty much making sure that my screws are long enough. And then if I'm long enough, which means I'm catching both cortices, that wire just pulls out without any tension. Mm -hmm. If you're pulling the wire out sometimes and you, you're, you're like, oh, this is too tough. In the back of your mind, you're like, oh, maybe I didn't catch both cortices. And the, uh, the wire is still impacted on the cortex on the other side. On the far side. Dr. D brought up a great point before, um, doing an Aiken osteotomy. I'll be honest, I wasn't a big Aiken guy up until I got into private practice. And I, I, I'd say quite often, I, I mean, literally nine out of 10 times I'm doing an Aiken uh, osteotomy. You just find it that cosmetically, the toe looks straighter yeah. in those patients that want to drift a little bit after the surgery. And so yeah, I think anytime you're doing a head neck procedure, it's a good idea. And then yeah. even lapidus, I don't do lapidi without doing an Aiken because you just you get patients who the toes are touching and they're like, oh, I don't like that. How often have you had patients come from other practices where they didn't do an Aiken? Yeah, and they're like, eh, you know, this guy did five years ago, and uh, my bunions come back. And the, the metatarsal is still in decent position, but they just need like an isolated ache in yep. sometimes. Yeah, it's pretty frequent actually. Yeah. So a lot of older patients will have that. I had this bunion done, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. And, um, you know, it feels like it's just come back. And we, you know, we expect a little bit of drift to happen. They estimate about three to five degrees of drift within the first two to three years. And then it kind of plateaus. But you're mitigating that drift by taking three to five degrees of an Aiken. Yeah. Yeah. And I do an oblique one and just throw a screw across yeah, it. Me too. I do okay. a nice oblique, but I do a staple. Yeah. So we take that little wedge out off the distal phalanx, usually apex towards the base of the the lateral the proximal phalanx. Proximal phalanx, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and I take that little wedge out, you let that drift on back over, you let that, that compress. Trying to and keep your hinge intact. You do a screw like this, I'm guessing, a little oblique yep. screw. Yep. Nice. I do a staple, something like this. But yeah, it all so the, works. The advantage of doing the the purely transverse is you're going to get a lot more correction. Yeah. So you need a very, very small wedge. I do an oblique one, so I have more bone-on-bone -bone contact. Yeah. I think, and, and you, you can't get away with as much correction, but you don't need a lot of correction with these most yeah. of the time. Real but if I've got sliver. a really wicked one, I'll have to do a transverse like you did there. Yeah. And you can fixate it with a thousand different things, screws, wires, staples, cerclage wire. On kids, sometimes if they're young, I'll use some type of absorbable suture even. I'll just put two drill holes and suture it and tie it off, and the suture will dissolve away and try to leave as little hardware in kids as possible. But yeah, let's jump into my little osteotomy here. All right, let's jump ahead. All right, so I'm dissecting it out. Um, same thing as before. I try to keep the uh, soft tissue dissection to a minimal 
I'm making my pocket on the medial side here, and then I'll probably do the same thing on the lateral side. Oh, I already did the lateral side. And uh, yeah, they'll put my little sends in there, and I'll kind of see, you know, how much um, osteotomy I got to do. So I'll do my two cuts, leaving a hinge on the lateral side. And uh, the, the nice thing about if you leave it towards the base is that there's a lot of soft tissue and ligamentous structures there that will kind of allow that hinge to, to be more mobile. Sometimes if you do the osteotomy distally, you'll catch in a lot of um, and a lot of new new students or whatever, they'll, they'll want to do it more distal. And what ends up happening is the soft tissue there is very weak, so you'll actually just break the cortex and then you kind of have two free-floating uh, fragments there. Yeah, leaving the hinge intact makes this way easier. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to change, you really should change your fixation technique if you break it. Yeah. Yeah. Two K wires or something. Yeah. Or it's two staples. All right. So now I'm measuring. This is a measuring slash drill guide. It's for the staple. The staple, you kind of break the two cortexes and drill down the path for the prongs of the staples. And then um, and you can measure with this device too. And uh, typically I'll use like a 10 millimeter uh, staple. 10 millimeter prongs. They come in different lengths and widths and whatnot. But if you're doing a screw, you would do a screw from the base. Oh, I, I mean, you say, you can tell this. You can do the base for the distal phalanx obliquely. How do you do your screw? It's still from proximal medial to distal lateral. Yeah, so you're coming right right along the incision. You kind of tuck that little screw into the, the flare at the base, and then um, you'll do that screw obliquely towards the tip of the second toe almost. So I do my first screw uh, my first uh, prong without the guide, and then I'll reduce the deformity, and then I'll use the guide to do my second prong. The reason I do the first prong this way is that I'm making sure I'm not violating the articular surface of the the first MPJ. Because sometimes if you're you're worried about getting that that fit on there just right, you know you may come back too proximal, only to come back and realize that. You're super, you know, close to the joint, or you blew out through the joint, and then you got to put another staple and stuff in there. So uh, I like to do this uh, simple method. If these um, sometimes these staples can sit prominent, I'll kind of rasp out a little groove. I'll just kind of take a rongeur or my saw and just kind of buzz down the articular. I mean, excuse me, the uh, the osseous surface between the two uh, pinholes, and that will allow my staple to sit flat. But this staple that I'm using here. Is, uh, they're is, pretty low profile. Yeah, they're pretty low profile. Yeah. So I tamp it into place. The uh, the nurse will give me some counter pressure. So I'm realizing right now that this this toe. I'll, I'll show it again. I'm realizing right now that this toe, uh, even after that reduction, it's still wanting to drift over. So I'll let me tamp that back down. Tamp, tamp, tamp. Tamp, tamp, tamp. I'll feel it's nice and flush, but it's still wanting to pull over. So you kind of see me springing the toe there. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to do a extensor tendon lengthening, which I don't do anywhere near as often as anything else. I'll probably do it maybe 1 in 20. Now, did, did you have an ankle tourniquet on that? Yeah. So, so I, you got to be a little careful with yeah, that. Because sometimes I, that's the source. It, the ankle tourniquet's putting tension on your extensor. Yeah. yeah. I 100% agree because yeah. that can mislead that. Yep. So if it's very strong, then I, I'll, I'll do it. If it's not that strong, if it's just very mild... Yeah, most of the time it'll just be the tourniquet. But in this case, his toe was just uh, uh, contracted for so long that his, his extensor was a little bit tight. So what we do is a Z lengthening. You can do little stab incisions. I like to do the little L type incision because I can kind of stitch it back together. And all we're doing is giving that tendon just a little bit of extra slack. That deficit that's there now will fill back in with normal tendon. 
So that's the nice thing about these. So find the extensor tendon. I do a little stab incision along the sheath. I don't like to use a blade too aggressively on the tendon. I'll use my Mets, free up that little extensor sheath that you have there, the extensor, um, just totally blanked on the term. Tendon sheath? No, what's that? Uh, Are you talking the about hood. The, the hood? Yeah, yeah the, the wing, wing and sling apparatus. Exactly. So I'm just, just freeing all that up. And so I can bring that back together later. I'll use some type of, you know, flat surface and I'll start my, my little cut, I don't know, back of my head there. <laughs> and then I'll just do a little slit on one side and do a slit on the other side. And sometimes you can tension it and it'll kind of start lengthening. Um, I don't remember if I had to cut it completely. Let's see. Yeah, you see I'm cranking away at the toe and I'll just kind of tease it. So, so I got you, that to was more Z-lengthening. Yeah, Z-lengthening. Or, or yeah, stab, so, stab, the stab incision version. You didn't free it up completely. So that that's... Hold on, I'm, I'm going to do it. Don't did you worry. release it? Oh, you did. Yeah, okay. so I do I do this, 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 I don't know. I don't like to run the blade along the tendons because and then I'm cutting through a couple of different fibers. So I'll, I'll lengthen it and then I'll just kind of cut whatever's kind of tagged on in between. It's like, remember when you do those Achilles lengthenings and you do it in the parallel field yeah. and you run the suture or mm -hmm. the, the spatula through it? Same, same effect. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm running in line with the fascicles of the, uh, the tendon fibers. And then I kind of just do like a running locking stitch through it. Yeah, the toe looks like it's in a better position. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, this guy is almost six weeks out now. He's doing great. His foot looks phenomenal. So yep, there you go. You can see it's no longer bow strung from that tendon there. I'm just making sure I do a good lateral release. I, making sure there's nothing on my end that I'm leaving. That's when the McGlamoury, the uh, ice cream scoop would have been great. All right. So now we're going to get into our wild osteotomy. That's when you have that long second metatarsal and we want to shift it back so it's in a normal parabola with the first and third metatarsal. The wild osteotomy is you know, one of those tried and true procedures. We literally do a oblique cut from the dorsal distal aspect of the second metatarsal proximally, and then we shift it back and we put a little screw in there, sometimes one, sometimes two. I do a single screw. Um, some people do two, some people do absorbable pins. I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to, to fixate this. Uh, there, was a, a, um, there was a couple of patients I've seen from uh, other doctors that do the, uh, the plate. They'll do like a two screw plate at the, uh, the metatarsal and they'll do a it almost looks like a little T, and they'll do two locking screws at the distal fragment. Overkill, <laughs> That's maybe. A overkill. Yeah, but a snap-off screws work great for that. So you just zip it in and. All right. So the incision that we do here is a lazy S-type incision. The reason for that is we're on a extensor surface, and I don't want to cause any contractures from my incision, causing you know that toe to drift back up. So I'll do a lazy S-type of incision. It gives me great exposure. And then it heals up. Honestly, it heals up great. Um, so yeah, if that if that incision scars in poorly, it's going to become a straight line. Yeah. If you use a straight line that scars in poorly, you're going to get a contracture. Yeah. yeah. So now I'm using my Mets, or excuse me, maybe a hemostat. I don't know. I'm doing blunt dissection, and what I want to do is pull the tendons over. Uh, for the second metatarsal, you can pull both of those tendons over laterally. For the other metatarsals, sometimes you have to split them, you know, pull one tendon over one way, one tendon over the other way. Getting down to the capsule there, pretty much going to move the entire tendonous unit as a single piece. And, and the reason you're not lengthening those structures is because you're taking length away from the bone underneath, so yeah. you really don't need to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So now I have my McGlamoury, which I probably should have used on that first MPJ. And I'm just gonna slowly bring it in there and then get that so it's lined up parallel so I can do my little osteotomy now. Just freeing up the soft tissue stuff on the sides. There we go, that's exactly what you wanna see. You know when I first started doing the, the back when I was in training and they'd be like, yeah, you wanna bring it in, you wanna bring it in tight and I'd just free it up and that's it. And they're like, you got to get that McGlamoury parallel with that second minotarsal. And I honestly, I think that makes the biggest difference. Yeah, I would agree. So I'm doing my cut. The The nurse there is pulling the soft tissue away, making sure I don't you know, harm anything. And you can kind of see when I'm all the way through, that kind of just wants to drop into place. So I'll pull my McGlam right out. And then I'll shift it back, usually about, I don't know, three to five millimeters, depends on how long the second metatarsal is. And then I'll do my x-rays to kind of see how far back. There we go, do an x-rays. And then I want to line it up just a little bit longer than the second and first. I mean, the third and the first. So, all right. So I just put a mark on the uh, the bone where I'm going to do the wire. Oh, no, never mind. I just did my wire. I'm measuring, excuse me. Yeah, you got the, the wire. wire's already in there. How did I get so far ahead of myself? Oh, maybe I put the wire in before I took the x-rays. Anyways, the wire, I use a cannulated screw for this one. Uh, you can use snap-offs. Uh, Dr. D, you know, I think you use snap-offs, right? Yeah, I don't do a whole bunch of wiles, but yeah, when I do, the snap-off yeah. ones are pretty easy. So same thing as before, I'll get my pictures, I'll get my x-rays, hold on, let's jump ahead, and then I'm putting that screw in there just like before, measure, countersink, and bam, press the change out, you got a, a nicely fixated uh, while osteotomy. And then I'm just getting x-rays. So I'm taking that lip that's sitting off that little shelf, cleaning that up, and it'll hopefully look like the patient never had surgery. Mine is the screws that might be in the patient's foot. But um, yeah, no restrictions on motion from, uh, from surgery, hopefully. All right, last thing we're doing. We're doing the equinus, the short Achilles component to this. So there's a lot of different ways to lengthen the Achilles. You can do, uh, the most common is probably the hoke, the hook triple hemi section where you lengthen the Achilles at the distal end of the tendon. You do three little stab incisions. And what you do is you can do a little accordion lengthening of that Achilles tendon. It works out well. Um, it's it's a tried and true, works really well, especially if you wanna get a lot of length. Great, great way to do it. That's what we're using for our transmetatarsal amputations, yep. midfoot amputations. So that's a real quick way to do that. The other common ways is the strayer lengthening. I used to, I did that for a while. I had a couple of patients end up with a neuritis, you know, scar tissue forms around that nerve, that sural nerve that kind of comes between the gastroc heads here and drifts over laterally. So I stopped doing that and I went back to my Bauman. The reason I switched initially was a strayer is argued to get more length, but I've been doing my Bauman. I swear I'm getting the same amount of length, if not maybe a little bit more. I go in between the muscles, between the gastrocnemius and the soles, the two tendon, the two muscles that make up the Achilles tendon, and we come on both sides and free up the fascia, just like how you do your stray lengthening, and you get some slack that way. I do mine endoscopically. I'm just gonna jump ahead because you're not gonna see anything up until I got my scope in there. There we go. All right, so I got my scope in there and they didn't switch over soon enough. So when you're looking, I'm looking for the, the tendon fibers here. So you see the tendon fibers? So I do my tendon fibers, I'm pushing up on the ankle 
and then I'll do both sides. I'll spin it around, and you can't tell I spin it around, but I spun it around, and then I do the other side. There you go. You see me spinning it, and then I'm going to go and do the other side, and I'm just freeing up just that top layer, that fascia that's between both of those muscle bellies. That's that tight banded tissue that's holding the, uh, the, the, the Achilles in length. So it gives you that extra 20 to 30 degrees of ankle dorsiflexion that you're looking for. Closure, this is, I'm just gonna run through this because you don't wanna hear me talk about closing, but we do a layered closure. We do the capsule, the tendon sheaths first, then we do soft tissue and then the skin typically. People like to use different things. I do 3-O-Vicryl, 4-O-Vicryl, and then typically monocryl, 4-O, 5-O monocryl, depending on how much tension I expect to be on the incision. So I'm bringing the periosteum and the capsule back together. All right, so real simple. So I'm doing the tendon sheath and the capsule all in one go, rather than doing multiple stitches. You don't want to leave too much absorbable material under the skin if you can avoid it. And then I think in this case, I also use a little stem cell graft, a little um, umbilical cord graft, excuse me, to help protect the tendon, just because I was like, all right, uh, the tendon is exposed, let's get that in there. Oh, perfect timing. Yeah, it, it's like st stiff tissue paper. So I'm just finishing up the last bit of that while that, that tendon graft kind of, oh, jumping too far ahead. That tendon graft starts softening up and getting overlapped over that tendon. And then I'm gonna jump to my forovicral, switch my pickups there. I use browns under the skin, and then uh, one twos on the skin. So simple stitch, just kind of deep to superficial, same thing on this side. So the knot, when I tie it, will be nice and deep underneath the skin. And then we'll tie it, and I tie it, tie it off in two or three different places. Same thing on the other incision. So, so you put, it. that was an amniograph? Yeah. Okay. Just, just, you know, sub-Q, one, it makes the scar heal up better. Lower inflammation, yeah. yeah, and then two, it protects the tendon from becoming adhesed along the um, the incision line, and then I do a running subcuticular, typically monocryl, so they have nice plastics type closure. The monocryl is absorbable; it dissolves out. The benefit is that you don't really have much stitch um, tracking on the incision, but the risk is that it's absorbable, and if it pops open too soon before the skin heals you're kind of at risk for getting a wound dehiscence. So there's like a risk gain benefit. But then I'll do massazole and steri strips and I'll do all that fun stuff also. Back of my head. And that's pretty much it, honestly. There's right, my massazole right. and probably steri strips soon to come after. There you go. Very nice. Steri strips I typically leave in place for about two to three weeks. Reinforce the skin. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Well, I think that was a terrific episode on the combo Bunion correction and addressing that sub-second med head pain. Yeah. Recovery, honestly, boot, just like before. Sometimes, like I said, we'll put a pin in there. I typically will, you know, talk about strapping the toe down if needed, if we kind of see the contracture. In his case, I think we just did something simple as Coban for the first couple of weeks, but that was it. And then uh, the post-op. So here's the post-op. You can kind of see that parabola is great now. You can kind of see that gap between that joint, how much uh, space we gave him and screws nice and flush, a little bit of tips on the either side, two or three threads, one or two threads, excuse me, on both sides. You can kind of see the before and the after. Before, after. Nice. Yeah. So all in all, pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all in all, pretty straightforward. Um, great way to address 
metatarsalgia and a bunion and the equinus component all at once. And uh, yeah, like I said, the patient's almost six weeks out. His foot looks phenomenal. He's doing great. Um, back in athletic shoes? Um, yeah, soon yep. to be back in athletic shoes. So typically six to eight weeks, I'll be like slow transition back to your normal shoes, stiff, stiff sneakers and a good pair of orthotics and he'll be golden. Nice. Very good. Well, thank you, Dr. Hussein. That was uh, tremendous. And uh, it looks like we got a couple other shows in the works. But I uh, hope you guys are enjoying these. And uh, definitely like, subscribe, and comment. Let us know what else you want to hear about, and we'll work on it. But we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Thank you for listening to The Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, and be safe. See you all next time. Bye-bye.